I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. So you always kind of wonder how somebody gets interested in a subject and turns it into a career. Well, joining us is Emily Keister, and she is a filmmaker. The movie everybody's talking about is called Bestwood. We're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. But first, let's get to know Emily a little bit. Now, Emily, you grew up right here in Wisconsin. Yes. Where were you? I was in a little town called Avoca, Wisconsin, which most people don't really know where that is on the map. Like 20 minutes from Dodgeville, 40 minutes from Platteville, hour west of Madison. It's a tiny little town. Did they have a movie theater? No. Oh, gosh, no. So (laughs) how did did you get interested in film? (laughs) Kind of a long story, but I got interested in film. I knew I wanted to do something in media. I always had a camera in hand. I mean, by the time I was six, I got a Barbie camera or a Barbie camcorder for Christmas. Did that work? It did. It was one where it recorded straight to a VHS machine in my bedroom. So I was making movies on VHS tapes. And then... What kind of movies were you making at six years old? It was really like filming my friends. We would do like obstacle courses, like very much like survivor style courses. And then it would go... So it's action adventure. Yes. But then I would do talk shows too. I would like tell my friends like, okay, sit here and we're going to do an interview. And then I would do like on my own personal vlog. So I would like set it up and just like talk to the camera like constant and then from there I had five or six different versions of little cameras growing up so I knew once I got to high school I think my past is telling me where I need to go. Did you keep all of those videos? I do have them yes yeah I have like two VHS tapes and then they had the little flip cameras that had like tiny little SD cards so I have those like I kept everything. So So. you knew at a fairly young age what your passion was. Yeah. And When it came time to decide on going to college, were your parents supportive of you becoming a film student? Yeah, I was surprised that my mom was as chill with it as she was. And originally I was thinking about more journalism. And then I went to like a journalism conference in D.C. and saw all the passion coming from other young journalists. I was like, I think I'm off by a little bit because it just didn't seem quite aligned with where I was feeling passionate. And so I kind of turned to film and writing and like being able to really curate my own story and have like complete creative control instead of like covering news and kind of doing more of like broadcast media so it changed a little bit but yeah my mom was supportive and I think she was thinking I would probably like change majors or back out at one point and then I never did and I just kept going and it worked. You got the golden egg you got a full ride scholarship I did to UWN was it because you had been working basically from the time you were six years old as far as putting together films I mean did they notice that was that part of what got you the scholarship? I think it was really my writing that got me the scholarship. I've always been a really big writer, right along with all the filming I was doing when I was little, I was always writing stories like constantly. And so when I was applying to colleges, I kind of wrote this like really, I still think it's a really interesting essay about being able to tell stories that do good and that impact people. And I submitted it and then they really, really liked me. You know, at that point, I was really active in everything in high school, you know, student council president, 
all those fun things. Like I was very high achieving student and yeah, they offered me the full ride and I took it. So when you got to UWN and you got in the film school, yeah, did you feel challenged or excited or, oh, I can do this? I mean, what was your whole concept once you got to the school? I was overwhelmed, especially coming from such a small town and then moving to Milwaukee and not knowing anyone and then getting into the film program. And, you know, I'd been around cameras, but it wasn't like I wanted to be a cinematographer that wasn't really like where I was headed so it was like a lot of equipment we were talking a lot of making films and I was like I have no idea what I actually want to do in the industry so it took me a little bit until I took my producing class and that's when things started to click for me when I knew I wanted to be a producer and really work more with kind of the behind the scenes and the budgets and the planning and a lot more of the boring logistic stuff than like dealing with the equipment. So it took me a while and I was definitely overwhelmed. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I would have never called it documentary filmmaking then, but now looking back, I'm like, oh, I was like making little documentaries from the start. Filmmaker Emily Keister talks about how she went from being a student filmmaker to getting a big break. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with filmmaker Emily Keister. Let's find out how working to get one film on the screen led to the making of Messwood. What was your first big student film? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I should know this. My first big student film, I'll probably say it was with Real Women, which is a UWM organization that uplifts women and women identifying young filmmakers from the school to create their own little production team. Because there was Production Club that was really, really popular. And that always felt like it was like the popular film kids were there. And it was never like a place where I was like, I'm going to join. So Real Women was definitely geared more towards my style. And I directed a student film for them. So that was probably my first really big one and that was when I was a junior so I was already at 371 at that point so 371 is a production company yes 371 Productions. so 371 found me when I was a sophomore because right when I got to UWM I started taking I mean now I see it was documentary filmmaking at the time I just thought I was part of Big Brothers Big Sisters and so I was going to see my little every week and I just started recording it and filming it and then UWM noticed and so they did like a little I am UWM like two minute spot about me and how I was taking my volunteer work and mixing it with my filmmaking and then 371 saw that and they invited me to intern and I would have never called it documentary filmmaking then but now looking back I'm like oh I was like making little documentaries from the start how much of an impact did that internship have on you and your career oh a huge one I mean that internship started my career and 371 really like brought me up and taught me everything that I know do you learn more there than at school yes I would say I learned more at 371 definitely in terms of like really working in the industry and making films and I guess what it is to work at a high caliber and what questions you need to ask and how do you get people to get money and really the grant making process you know I learned a lot at school and I'm really happy for it but that was really geared more towards creative thinking 
And 371 was a lot more of logistics and shaping a story once you have an idea and how do you get people to give you money to make it. Well, asking for money is one of the most difficult things to do, at least in my opinion. How did you learn to do that? Because if you're a producer, it's all about getting money to make your films. Yeah. I think that's where my writing comes in. So really asking for money is just being able to convey to anybody out there why the story is important and why it needs to be told right now and why this team needs to be the one to tell it. And it's about being able to capture that in a way that people listen and people want to invest in your project. And it's about being able to put together a budget and then show why your budget number is the way that it is. It's really hard. It's a lot of work, but it's, I think, something that just kind of fell naturally in my skill set with how I grew up. What's the biggest amount of money you've ever had to ask for? Masswood was a seven-figure budget, so that was that's definitely that's number money. one. Yeah, it's big leagues money when you're talking about documentaries. I want to talk about Messwood because this is a story about right here in Milwaukee. And I know it's a passion project and it is getting a lot of buzz because it's just now out digitally. And we'll talk a little bit about that and how people can see it. But the name Messwood and the film Messwood, how did you come to this to begin with? Right. Messwood, the project actually started as something completely different. Originally, Brad and I... Tell everybody who Brad is. Sorry, Brad Lichtenstein is my co-director, co-producer on Messwood, also the president and founder of 371 Productions. Who we've had here on on Conversations. Yes. I was working at 371, and it was when Shorewood was going to put on the play To Kill a Mockingbird, and there was a big controversy over that, and the play was canceled, and then rescheduled and canceled, and that was our original story. That was kind of where we were aiming the documentary to really focus on. And then we ended up not getting enough access to tell a true, real story about that. Access from the high school, you mean? Yes, yes, access from the high school. So we really weren't able to get into classrooms and talk to teachers and be able to tell that story. And it was at a school board meeting or a community forum that someone said, you should look at the Messwood football team. They're really doing some great things and have a really interesting story. Had you heard of Messwood before? I hadn't, no. I had no idea that they had a co-op team right in my neighborhood. It was just not something I knew about. But then we pivoted and we met all the players and all the boys and all the coaches and we knew we had a story on our hands. So the name Messwood, which immediately grabbed your attention. Right. Where does that name come from? So the name comes from the two schools that make up the Messwood team. So you have Mesmer and you have Shorewood. So Messwood is that combination of of both schools that come together to play on the team. But the interesting thing, and as you said, it's in your own neighborhood. They're a mile apart. Right. But there's a world of difference between Mm -hmm. those two schools. Explain that. Yeah. So I think they're 1.2 or 1.3 miles apart, but they sit in drastically different neighborhoods. I think Shorewood's like the richest zip code in Wisconsin. And the neighborhood that Mesmer sits in is known for incarcerating the most black men in our country. So you're talking about very, very different communities who are, you know, facing very different challenges and have very different realities. And Mesmer students come from all over Milwaukee. So it's not like they're necessarily sitting in that zip code, but they're traveling to get to school by bus or having to drive a certain number of miles. And Shorewood students, for the most part, can walk to school. Or they drive their own cars. Or they drive their own cars, right. You know, and there's still Shorewood students that kind of come from outside of that Shorewood community, but 
the majority lives in that community, and Mesmer really pulls students from all over Milwaukee. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. They had lost three seasons or more of football games in a row, so that's when administrators looked to the school right down the street. Filmmaker Emily Keister talks about how Shorewood High School and Mesmer High School became Messwood. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with filmmaker Emily Keister and find out the greatest challenges of bringing these two schools and the students together. How did the story start? When did these two schools combine for a football team? Mm Mm-hmm. And why? So it was 2001 when they first decided to co-op and combine. And it was really because Mesmer at the time didn't have enough players or enough resources to really field their own football team. And Shorewood also was struggling with having enough players and were coming off of like a record-breaking losing streak. So they had lost three seasons or more of football games in a row. So that's when administrators looked to the school right down the street and were like, why don't we just play together on the same team? So it was back in 2001 that they really started the program and it's been going ever since but there was a coach there was a coach that really brought things together yes. tell us a little bit about coach davis yes coach davis is amazing he really loves the boys and you can tell when you watch the film he's passionate about not just them as football players but them as young men and who they're becoming and you know how they look at life and how they walk through life and he has a full-time job as an electrician so he's not like he's employed and working at either of the schools he's working a full-time job and then comes out and dedicates his time to the football team how did he get involved in coaching as an electrician it's kind of one of those backstories (laughs) right you're like how did that happen Coach Davis's son played on the football team. So he started assistant coaching when he was in middle school and then he got to high school. And then, you know, as his son got older and kind of rose in the ranks of the program, so did Coach Davis and got more involved. And then he loved the team and the players so much that even when his son graduated, he stuck around. Let's talk about the actual team. Yes. Because you've got the the kids who, let's say, are pretty privileged who came from Shorewood and they're predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the kids from Mesmer who their life experience in a lot of ways is very different because they're growing up in neighborhoods where there's a high crime rate, lots of poverty, and they're African-American. When these two elements, when these two groups of kids came together, what were some of the challenges or were there any? There were challenges. I think it's more of lived experience. You know, it wasn't really how much money parents made or, you know, I think that the parents and the adults were more I guess, noticing kind of that class difference or, you know, racial divide. I think the boys were just, they really noticed, like, what kind of music do you like? And if it's different than me, like, I wonder why. And so it was a lot of just trying to figure out, like, the boys would tell you it's like toughness. Boys from Mesmer were tougher than the boys from Shoreward. That's kind of how they would define it. For me, I just think it's like, you know, we like this stuff. You like that stuff. How do we figure out how we can be friends and make it work? So I think that was the biggest difference. And they would stick in their own pods for the most part, right? What do you mean? I guess in the beginning of the season, the Mesmer boys would stick with the Mesmer boys. The Shorewood boys would stick with the Shorewood boys. But then you can only really go through so many number of days of like hitting each other in practice before you actually start building a bond and making a family. When you realize how tough 
tough someone else is and how much they can withstand. And that's really where I think barriers got broken down and, you know, they started to care and look out for each other. And this is where Coach Davis is so interesting. Yes. Because like you said, he didn't have a career as far as being a teacher who deals with a lot of young people and has all the background in the classes on this is how you bring people together and motivate them. He somehow knew not just how to motivate them to become great football players, but how to become great people. Right. Yeah. Coach Davis is great. And he'll tell you, and he says it in the film, it's not a race thing. He's not going to talk about race. It's football. And so he really was hands off and was like, just be a team. Like, you know how to care about somebody. And respect, I think, is a really huge thing. You know, he's like, you don't have to understand where someone else is coming from, but you have to respect that they're coming from somewhere. When you talked with Coach Davis, was it all positive or were there struggles? Were there problems? With the team? Yeah, with the, with um, the kids. I mean, it was really grades coming from both sides in both schools because the team we followed was really young. So the biggest struggle was keeping everyone's GPA up enough that they could participate in the entire football season. What was the GPA they had to have? I think it was a 2.0 that they had to stay above. So it was hard to get them even to that point yeah. in some cases. Yeah, for sure. They lost a lot of players around that last grade check right before they went into the last couple of games. How did he motivate them? It's a mixture of motivating. I mean, I think motivation is a big part of it. I think what he did is provide resources. So before practice, he had a little class session. So he would bring everyone in and they would do their homework for an hour before they went to practice, right? So he extended practice by an hour to give, in the beginning, them time to just do homework and study on grades. And it also gave the boys opportunities to like be in the same classroom because two schools, you're never going to be in the same classroom otherwise. And so they got to sit in the same classroom and do homework and kind of compare like, this is what I'm learning at this level. This is what you're learning at this level. Like, how can we help each other? And so he really just provided the space and the resources. Was that also building that bond among Absolutely. the Absolutely. You know, it let them not be in football gear and helmets and uh, hitting each other. Let them be in a space where they can realize, they, oh, we listen to the same music. Or some of them, when they were done with homework or just not doing it, would like watch YouTube videos. And they were like, oh, we laugh at the same things and we find the same things funny. And like it definitely allowed them to just like be young men in the same space, which was really, really important. When you talked with some of the players, did they talk about some of the preconceptions that they had before they got to know the other kids? And what were they? Yeah, absolutely. Privilege is a huge thing. Definitely talked about that and seeing how big the school was or, you know, Shorewood has off campus. So like during lunch, they can like walk around the neighborhood and do whatever. And, you know, Mesmer doesn't have that. And so it's definitely they noticed and it was definitely a topic of conversation. And, you know, we talked about code switching a lot. Uh, you talked about what again? Code switching. Now, what is that? Code switching. It's when, especially being a black woman from an all white town, it's about knowing how to kind of change how you act or how you talk depending on what setting you're in. Like when I am in Atlanta, there's a very different way that I'll talk and I'll act than when I go home to Little Avoca. I have to be able to protect myself. And for me, that means navigating and kind of switching everything to make sure that I'm keeping myself safe. So I think it's a self-defense mechanism. There's a big discussion about code switching for sure. So how did that apply to the kids? Was it more of an issue for the black kids or the white kids? Definitely for the black kids. I mean, I think it's always, you know, for black folk. We are the ones who have to figure out how to navigate different spaces. It doesn't normally really go the other way because we live in a white world and we live in a world that's set up by white people. So the people who have to 
figure out how to navigate it are the folks who are not white. Did any of the white kids ever say that they had to change the way they talked or they behaved when they were in a predominantly black group? No. I think that they would probably say like, oh, I'm just trying to be like cooler, which has its own set of problems. But no, it was never out of necessity, social or physical safety, which I think sometimes would happen with the Mesmer boys because they would get like pulled over driving to practice. Just driving while black. Yeah. Absolutely. Driving from Mesmer to Shorewood. That one mile stretch. Yeah, absolutely. On multiple occasions, it would happen. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. Some people in Shorewood were talking about mortgage and APR on a house and lawn care. And that's not what other parents who live in other parts of Milwaukee are talking about. Filmmaker Emily Keister talks about the challenges, not that the students faced, but the parents. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is filmmaker Emily Keister, the co-director of Messwood. When they were actually playing, did any of the kids feel like they were victims of racism? Yeah. And even when you watch the film, and it came from the other conference football teams it wasn't inside yeah there's a game where the boys are upset because they were being called the n-word from the other team so it's definitely like as a community as a collective of a football team they experience things that so when this happened to the teammates Mm -hmm. of the kids who were white on messwood they're hearing their teammates being called racial epithets Mm -hmm. how did they react did they defend them did they come to their defense? Yeah, the older boys do, you know, when you're like 16, 17. I think the younger boys were more startled than anything because they hadn't realized that we still live in a time and place where we get called that frequently. Yeah, more frequent than you would ever hope or wish. Yeah, the younger boys were definitely startled. Like, I don't even know how to move or like what to do. And then, yeah, the older boys definitely will stand up and defend them. How did the parents react? I know you do quite a bit in the film, that's what, about the moms and the dads in the stands. Did they have more problems relating to each other than the teammates did? Oh, yeah. The parents, I think, had a harder time figuring out how to like be friends and navigate the space. I mean, I think adults are seeing more things are a little bit more jaded because we've lived longer. So it was definitely more of a struggle to get the parents to spend time together. So explain what was going on in those stands. Yeah. So, I mean, it was definitely, again, that separation of Mesmer parents would stand here and Shorewood parents would stand here. And sometimes it was even more of a divide where it was just like pockets of families that never really would interact. You have specific families that their boys have been playing on the same teams for years. So those families are going to stand in pods. But yeah, and there's also that age divide. The football team had either 17-year-olds or 14-year-olds. So there's a pretty big gap between, you know, there were like sophomores and seniors. There wasn't a junior class. And so I think that that was a big part too, because some of these parents, this was their boy's first year on varsity team. They hadn't been around a lot of these parents. And so it was definitely a lot harder and, you know, 
conversations in the stands, some people can't relate to what you're talking about. How do you mean? You know, like some people in Charlotte were talking about mortgage and APR on a house and what they're experiencing or like HRAs and lawn care. And that's not what other parents who live in other parts of Milwaukee are talking about. I mean, there are just other things. What was the reaction of some of the mesmer parents when they'd overhear these conversations? It's kind of just like, oh, my God, like your reality is so different from mine. And I just can't be reminded of it again and again. There's not a lot of spaces where they even have the opportunity to like find mutual ground and like things other than loving their sons. There wasn't ever really a time where they like got to know each other. Did the Sherwood parents have the same reaction as the Mesmer parents to these conversations or did it just go over their heads? I think it wasn't the same reaction, but it's definitely like startling, right? Because you're like, oh, you're talking about real intense things, things I can't relate to because you don't really realize what another family is going through, both good and bad, right? And I hate to kind of sit on the bad and talk about Milwaukee as if all these families were struggling and going through really terrible things because that wasn't the case. But it's still an entirely different way of thinking. Just again, like navigating the world as a black person, you're going to be more aware of a lot of things that a white family would never have to be aware of or have to navigate around. And some of the parents are driving like 40 minutes to watch their boys play. So I wouldn't say the same reaction, but parents are startled. And then you don't really know what to say or how to communicate. And it feels like you're so different from me that I don't know how to move. I don't know how to communicate. It feels like a barrier goes up and adults really don't know how to sit in the uncomfortable and just talk about being uncomfortable. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. There's opportunity to bring communities together and to talk about the things that we would never think to talk about and get stronger as a community. Filmmaker Emily Keister talks about starting a conversation, bringing communities together. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to our conversation with filmmaker Emily Keister, co-director of Messwood. I'm your host, Libby Collins. As the kids would come from Sherwood and the kids would come from Mesmer to watch the games, did they socialize? No, there really weren't a lot of Mesmer students that came. Why do you think that is? I think it's a, a big part of the fact that they're coming from all over Milwaukee. And then they're a predominantly black school. So you're asking young black kids to enter an all white space and in a neighborhood that's not theirs, in a city that's not theirs. You know, unless they come out in the masses and all come as a giant collective, like it doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel safe. And then you're talking about having to also like drive 40 minutes for a football game. And you know, the short students, when they show up, they can just walk. So they're going to come in big groups. And so you're going to be outnumbered. So I think it's a really intimidating thing. Did you talk to any of the Mesmer students about whether or not they felt like they weren't being included with the team's success? Conversations with the Mesmer students. So I don't know if they felt necessarily left out. I think it was accepted. Honestly, I think it was just kind of part of the deal. That was the status quo. We support our team, but we have to protect ourselves. And How did that make the players feel, particularly the ones who were coming from Mesmer? Yeah. They'd see all the Shorewood parents and student pep groups and everything out there, and yet the stands were kind of empty of their friends from Mesmer. Yeah. I mean, they would tell me they didn't care. You know, they Do you think of, they did? I think they did to an extent. I mean, their parents showed up, which I think was a really big part of it. And they had families that came. But yeah, I think they cared. But I also think that 
one, it was something they were used to. People got to not showing up to the games. And, you know, I think it was something that they understood and they just loved the game. So I don't know. I mean, I'm sure me in their shoes, I would be upset. But I think I would just understand, like, the situation of where we are in the city that we're in and just play the sport and love the sport. And the rest of the stuff is just another layer of existing in this city. I said earlier that Messwood is getting a lot of buzz. Yes. Kind of in the same way as the movie Hoop Dreams, if anybody remembers that, about the students in Chicago who wanted to go on to the pros in basketball. And it's because it's an uplifting story. I mean, you're here to tell this is the reality, but at the same time, you want to lift people up. Right. Yeah. I mean, we want to start conversation and it is an uplifting film. There are some pretty tough moments, but then there's also a lot of moments where the boys will make you laugh because they're inherently very funny people. So it is an uplifting film and it's a conversation starter. I mean, you're really meant to watch the film and find someone you relate to and learn through their eyes and then find someone that you wouldn't think you relate to and like see that there's more that meets the eye and just to be able to talk about the things that make us uncomfortable, talk about things that we normally would never have to address in our real lives and look at the city of Milwaukee and realize that there is opportunity to bring communities together and to talk about the things that we would never think to talk about and get stronger as a community. It's a feature-like documentary. Yes. Where can you see it? How can we see it? Because I've seen the previews, which look amazing. Thank you. And you just kind of get excited. I showed it to my (laughs) husband. He says, I want to see that movie. Where can we see it? So it is out video on demand, Apple, Google, Amazon, and Vudu. So if you've got any of those, yes, you can just if you have any of it. those random streamers. Now, what are you hearing? Because obviously, as a filmmaker, you listen to the critics. What's been the reaction so far? So far, it's been received really well. People really love the film. And I think people really either love or really hate Coach Davis, which I think speaks to his success on our part because he he's a fascinating he's fascinating it's really interesting to see who reacts to coach davis in what way because i think it speaks a lot to how you were raised and how you might see the world he's a fascinating fascinating man but at the end of the day i mean he loves the players and he shows up for them in every way what's been the reaction of Coach Davis and the players yeah. to the film. They've been excited. Our original premiere was October of 2021. So that was really when I think they were most excited. We flew out a couple of them to watch in New York with us. And that was when the hype was really there. So now that it's out, I think everyone's kind of breathing a sigh of like, oh, okay, we made it. We did it. It's out there. People can watch it. And then people can really engage with it, you know, without having to come to a film festival. So it really means that these conversations feel a little bit smaller, but then they're more intimate, right? When somebody in a family will watch the film, then they're able to kind of have a one-on-one conversation with that family member instead of feeling like you're in a big place with a lot of people asking a lot of questions. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations, what's the excitement for you? Why Atlanta? It's kind of Hollywood. (laughs) Filmmaker Emily Keister explains why she wouldn't want to move to Hollywood. What if you could build a six-figure retirement income with almost half the money saved? You heard that right. Get a discount on your retirement, creating a six-figure income with 40% less than traditional 401ks and mutual funds. Hi, I'm Mitch Lyons, best-selling author and executive producer of a new Hollywood documentary called The Baby Boomer Dilemma. In this film, economists and Nobel Prize-winning PhDs from Wharton, MIT, and Stanford share a strange concept I call the retirement discount. It gives you more retirement income with the same dollar saved, and your money is never at risk if the market crashes. That's right. If the market crashes 30%, you lose nothing. 
even people who are on track have shifted money to this new strategy because it increases their retirement income or can allow them to stop working years sooner. So if you are over 50 and want a bigger, better retirement with less money, call to get a free copy of this brand new movie, 1-800-578-3535. This is a $30 value, but when you call today, you get it completely free, plus two hours of bonus behind-the-scenes footage. No credit card required. Call right now, 1-800-578-3535. That's 1-800-578-3535. Again, 1-800-578-3535. Spas, spas, spas. The Swim Spa Hot Tub and Sauna Show is this weekend only at the Wisconsin State Fair Cream Puff Pavilion. Millions of inventory must be sold. Prices are slashed up to 60% off retail, so save thousands. Save big on new hot tubs, spas, and saunas. Plus, see the Michael Phelps Signature Swim Spas by Master Spas. Hi, I'm Michael Phelps. Join the swimming revolution. The Swim Spa Hot Tub and Sauna Show, this weekend only at the Wisconsin State Fair Park Green Puff Pavilion. Visit 800spasale.com. Everyone's journey after a serious crash is different, but no matter the circumstances, the one thing you'll need is help. Our team at Gruber Loftus is here for you 24-7. Injured? Call Gruber Loftus today. One call. That's all. Grandview buys homes. Let us help you sell your loved one's home. We'll buy your home completely as is. Get a fair cash offer in 48 hours and close on the day you choose. Take only the belongings you want and leave the stress and the mess to us. GrandviewHomes.com. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI-HD2 Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with the co-director of Messwood, filmmaker Emily Keister. What's next for you, Emily? What's you're, next you're, for yeah, me? <laughs> you're, you're a filmmaker. You've had a lot of success with this. You're now in Atlanta, which is turning into a huge film capital with Tyler Perry's studios down there. And I understand there are a lot of others. What's the excitement for you? Why Atlanta? Why Atlanta is kind Why of not Hollywood. Uh, no, sorry. Well, that was an interesting reaction. <laughs> I knew I wanted to move from Milwaukee and really from Wisconsin. I grew up in all white spaces for my whole life. And I knew that I wanted to change that. L.A. has a very specific vibe that does not really align with mine. Nothing bad about it, but it's definitely like, you know, everyone moves to L.A. And I love visiting out there, but it's just never was a place where I was like, I'm going to move there. So I was between New York and Atlanta and Atlanta won me over because of the weather. Really? <laughs> I just like did not want to Atlanta, do huh? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I would much rather be in a hundred degree weather than negative degree weather. <laughs> so that was a big, big piece of it. And then, yeah, the film industry there is booming. And I've got a few projects that are kind of on the way, all kind of in different stages. So do you um, think you're going to stay in that documentary space or do you hope to expand into other areas of filmmaking? I hope to expand. I definitely want to be a writer so there's a big part of me that's starting to transition there but I don't think I'll ever truly move away from documentaries because I love the impact that a documentary can have and the ability and I guess the honor and the privilege to tell somebody else's story and to be given that blessing is something that has like changed my life so I don't think I'll ever walk away from it. We hear about the lack of diversity Mm -hmm. in filmmaking. And you kind of have a double whammy. (laughs) You're not only uh, black, you're also a woman. Have you felt that? Has it been difficult for you or more difficult for you than, say, some of the white guys you went to school with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mean, (laughs) how? I'm like a young, black, queer, 
transracial adoptee. So like it's been well, okay. I think, that, I think that was all the boxes, <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? It really is. Yeah. So, you know, you have a lot of spaces I show up in that I don't really look like anyone. So it's been a lot of like people not taking me seriously. Because you're young? Yeah, and I also, I mean, I look younger. You do, we you do look young. Yeah. You do, we talked about that. I look younger than I am, and I always have. So people just assume that I don't have experience, or I don't know what I'm talking about, or like I can't possibly have a strong creative mind. Black women get talked over a lot, so that's something I've always experienced. And I will push back pretty quickly. I mean, I will pretty quickly tell somebody and put somebody in their place if they talk over me. So it's kind of constant. Or... I've experienced almost the complete other side of the spectrum where because I check all these boxes, people want me on their projects so that they can check the box of having a diverse crew. So then I'll be on a project, but like then not really be listened to or again, not be taken seriously. So it's always it's constant. I mean, I just have to go into every room preparing for battle and to really see what happens. But I'm very picky about the teams I work on. And I think that's something that has really done me well is knowing and kind of being able to tell what teams really get my hard work and my passion and what people I just won't give the time of day. And I will quickly just be like, I'm not engaging in conversation with you anymore. I'm done. Emily, let's look 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Yeah. Where do you see yourself and what kind of films will you be making? I definitely want to be part of a writer's room. And I have kind of noticed I've been pivoting a little bit more towards comedy in both like the fictional and documentary space. I think eventually where I hope to be way, way down the road is to be an executive producer of some sort and being able to find young people and fund their projects and give them support. So being able to make my own work, but then also being able to turn it around and support people to make really good work as well, to tell stories that can change people's minds and start conversations and have like a true impact on a community and to really make something meaningful and worthwhile. There's no doubt we're going to be seeing the name Emily Keister on a lot of credits for a lot of films, probably television and who knows what else. That's the hope. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. So everyone is stuck with me. <laughs> We've been talking with Emily Keister, who grew up in central Wisconsin. She came to UWM, got a big break working for 371 Films, and now she is the co-director of Messwood. It's a film you don't want to miss about the bringing together of two high schools, Mesmer and Shorewood, to create a new football team, Messwood. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with Emily, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.